Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut is one of three dozen states that have sued pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma, based in Stanford. Now, a deposition obtained by ProPublica and Stat raised questions over how much a key member of the Sackler family knew about the addictiveness of its opioid painkiller, OxyContin. A reporter for ProPublica will join us. That's coming up. We'll also take you inside an unusual course at UConn. Patrick Scahill, Connecticut Public Radio's science and environment reporter, will talk about the first-ever horticulture of cannabis class at the university. That's just ahead. First, have you filed your taxes? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Some Americans are choosing to hold off, including myself, but that might not be such a good idea considering the changes to the tax code in late 2017. Uh, to explain, I want to welcome into our studio Magdalena Jondro, who's a financial advisor and partner with Jondro Wealth Management, LLC. Uh, may I call you Maggie? Yes, of course. Thank you. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. So remind us again what happened in December of 2017 that really uh, changed our tax code in this country. Absolutely. So in 2017, uh, the tax code was overhauled. Uh, It's the greatest change we've seen in 30 years with almost 600 changes. Um, Most people, however, were not seeing the effects of these changes until this filing tax season. Remember, tax season is always looking back at the prior year. So it really started affecting in 2018 uh, taxpayers. So when this uh, this tax uh, bill was going through Congress uh, and President Trump was talking about it, there was a lot of attention on, well, this is just going to help the extreme wealthy in our country avoid paying even more taxes. So can you walk us through again, uh, when you think about the changes, um, how much uh, the wealthy will be paying and how much the, the rest of us, the middle class, will be paying? Sure. So uh, certainly uh, the wealthy did get some sort of tax cuts. Um, an analyst uh, estimated that about the top top 5%, we'll see about 40% um, changes in their taxes. But 40% that, reduction? Not a reduction, okay, okay. but just f- about 40% uh, uh, of the, uh, the laws were affecting them. Okay. That being said, um, the middle class should also expect a tax break. Um, the average for somebody making around $50,000, we'd expect uh, the average middle class person to have a reduction on average of about $950. So it's not just for the wealthy. And um, there's even under other individual people, such as sole proprietors or freelancers, that might even see a greater tax break. Uh, so you mentioned uh, with uh, the fact that some of us might be seeing, uh, many of us probably saw a little bit more money in our paychecks yes. in 2018. Uh, but what did that mean in terms of how people should have adjusted their paychecks so that maybe they'd get to see a bigger tax refund, if possible, when they file? Sure. So if we take a step back, uh, conventional wisdom actually says, uh, from a financial advisory perspective, you shouldn't be overpaying the government. You shouldn't be overwithholding your taxes. The reason being is you're really giving a free loan to the government that's not earning any interest. Sure, it's nice to get that several hundred or maybe several thousand dollar refund during at, at the end of tax season, but really you've just lent the government money for free for an entire year. So instead, what you want to be doing is 
withholding the proper amount and ideally breaking even at the end of the tax season. So what happened with the withholdings is the tables were changed, and the IRS did release guidelines suggesting to look at your withholding status, making sure that you are withholding the proper amount. Um, so mo most people are probably seeing greater paychecks uh, month to month, um, but they might see a smaller tax return. So when we think about the standard deduction, so has uh, it doubled for a single and for married file filing jointly? Yes, so it's it's almost doubled. So if you're married filing jointly, the standard deduction is now twenty four thousand. Uh, if you're married head of household, it's eighteen thousand, and if you're filing single, it's twelve thousand. So a significant increase from the past. So the idea being easier to file your taxes, but what do you recommend for people? Should they still attempt to itemize to see where they end up? Yes. Yeah, so the goal here was to make it easier for people to file taxes. And indeed, the Tax Policy Center um, released estimates believing that 90% of people are going to use the standard deduction. This is an increase of almost 20%. So certainly something uh, it should be easier for taxpayers. That being said, I would still run the numbers both ways. I always say um, we're giving general advice here, and really you want to work with a CPA and run the numbers both ways because it may or may not sense, make sense for you to take the standard deduction. Uh, this is where we live. In studio with me, Magdalena Jondro is a financial advisor and partner with Jondro Wealth Management, LLC. As we take a look into how changes to the U.S. tax code are going to impact uh, many Americans uh, this tax season, have you filed already? Are you procrastinating because you're worried? about maybe not um, having uh, taken um, too much money out of your paycheck uh, to pay the government and now that refund has been slashed or you're going to have to owe, uh, you can join our conversation 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Maggie, we did get a couple of uh, comments from listeners on social media. Uh, one uh, woman wrote, I changed my forms to have the maximum taken out plus an additional $10 per check, but I make very little money and I was counting on my return to pay bills. I received 800 less than usual, and it really hurt me. So um, depending on how much of her income, it still ended up not helping her by taking out a little bit more during the year. Yeah. So again, the tax withholding tables were changed and so that you weren't over withholding. But I think a lot of taxpayers did not realize that. The second piece, uh, which does affect Connecticut residents a lot, is that uh, the, the change in this SALT deduction. Um, so a lot of itemized deduction and the personal exemptions were eliminated or changed. And the major one for Connecticut tax filers would be the SALT deduction. And this might be a reason that people, again, are seeing less of a return. However, estimates do believe that that people are paying less in taxes this year. So when you say SALT, so, the, so it st stands for state and local taxes, uh, that was capped at $10,000? Uh. That's right. It used to be unlimited, and now it's been capped at $10,000. So what this meant was you could take your personal property tax, real estate tax, sales, and income tax and uh, that you paid to the state and, of course, deducted against your federal tax. Um, now that's been capped at 10000 So in states with high income earners or high income or property taxes, Connecticut being an example, New York, New Jersey, California, those uh, people might be seeing some significant changes in the way they're filing their taxes. It may not make sense to itemize anymore because of that cap. It might make sense to take the standard deduction now instead. When we think of Connecticut, again, being one of these high uh, tax states, so a big chunk of Connecticut residents are not are going are gonna to see less money because of that SALT deduction being capped. Yes, potentially. Again, I would recommend running the numbers both 
both ways because it, it, it still might make sense to take the itemized deduction um, because this uh, $10,000 cap plus other things that you might still be able to deduct um, still might be greater than that threshold of the standard deduction. Let's talk through some other changes. on How does that impact the federal estate and gift tax? Sure. Um, this is good news for taxpayers. Uh, the federal estate and gift tax went from $4.59 million to $11.18 million. So as you can imagine, the majority of Americans um, won't be seeing on a federal level uh, their heirs having to pay taxes on any of the estates that have been passed down to them. Of course, you still have to remember there's the state uh, the state uh, estate and gift tax. Um, but uh, recently, Connecticut in 2017 did pass some legislation. It wasn't highly publicized that was really going to tie our state estate and gift tax to the federal one. So, um, you know, Connecticut residents might uh, just have to have the same amount as the federal, which is which is good news for us here. Uh, we know there was a, a shutdown uh, recently. Uh, so when people are thinking about filing, what are the best ways to do so, Maggie, if they worry about if there are going to be any uh, delays? Yes. Yeah, so uh, thankfully, the government shutdown was over and a budget was passed prior to really getting into the heart of tax season. An IRS spokesperson uh, did say that people should still expect to get their tax returns within 21 days if they file electronically and use direct deposit. Certainly, it might take a little bit longer if you're mailing in that return. Um, but that being said, there might be longer wait times simply because of the changes in the tax code. It's a learning process for everybody, including the IRS. So, so far, we've seen an increase in call wait times. The average has been about 17 minutes. In the past, it was four. So just be ready if you have uh, phone calls to be patient. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Michael is calling from Meriden. Michael, go ahead. Hi, I, I just wanted to say that uh, I just did my taxes and I was very happy with the results, uh, particularly because I did see uh, extra money in my paycheck. I knew that was coming. Um, and my tax return, uh, even though it was uh, slightly less than it was last year, I'm not relying on it that way. And I understand the mathematics of it. So I was very, very happy. And I'm also very happy to hear you guys report on it um, in the way that you are very truthfully and honestly, because um, I think in the traditional media, it's, it's it's being kind of overhyped is that, oh, people are, you know, seeing less money and, and this is bad and yada, yada. But the reality is, is uh, they actually are getting a, a decent tax break. And I'm glad that you're letting people know that. Oh, Michael, can I ask you, you said your refund was really good. So when you saw a little bit more in your paycheck, did you change your withholding? No, I actually didn't change anything. Well, good. I, uh, <laughs> I kept it all the same um, and I still got a decent refund. Um I do understand that people shouldn't be relying on that, but I I just tend to like to have that uh, little little bit of a bonus at the end of the year, and um, I still got a really decent refund even though I saw more money in my check. So I'm I'm good. Well, Michael, thank you for your call. This uh, Michael's comment uh, leads me to my next question, which is, uh, Maggie, uh, when we when we are if we're lucky enough to get a refund. What should we, we be doing with that money? Sure. So a lot of people uh, rely on that refund uh, for various things. Uh, some decide to take a trip with it, which certainly is fun. But maybe from a financial perspective, there might be some um, different decisions you could make. So first and foremost, if you do
do have some uh, large debt, uh, check the interest rate. If there, are, if you have any debt, specifically credit card debt, which tends to have higher interest rates, it might make sense to use that refund to pay that off. Um, obviously, high interest rates just mean that you're paying the credit card more and more money. Um, secondly, I would certainly encourage you to save that, particularly for retirement. Um, you know, we, I always say that you could take a loan for anything in life, but you can't take a loan for retirement. So the more you can uh, uh, save there, the better. And then, of course, uh, there's the, the hope from economists is that people will spend their return and inject that money into the economy to stimulate growth. So uh, certainly buying maybe a, a bigger purchase or doing some home improvements are great ways to help the economy as a whole. Uh, we heard from another listener who said that uh, he or she was definitely feeling frustrated because their return was a third of last year's. Uh, they anticipate a lower amount, but nothing like this. Goodbye planned home upgrades mm-hmm. for the year. So that is a, definitely a reality for some people. It absolutely is. And, and for, you know, I can at least say that they're not alone. I mean, the average return as, as of the beginning of February has been down 8% from the previous year. Um, I, I don't know if that helps your listeners knowing that they're not alone, but certainly there are some things that people can do moving forward to either plan uh, those home improvements or to minimize their tax bill. Uh, you know, when when the again the tax bill was being uh, debated uh, within Congress, there was a lot of concern, uh, especially from charitable organizations, that if people are uh, not able to itemize and they take that standard deduction, that they're going to be cutting back also on you know how much they're giving to charitable organizations. So, uh, tell us um, a little bit about what you're hearing from your clients and how people can still think about considering uh, giving to charity. Yeah, absolutely. That was a concern. Um, Certainly, we like to believe that people give to charity out of the goodness of the heart. But um, there is an added incentive to know that that is an extra line that you could itemize if you are itemizing your deductions. So the IRS and Congress uh, still value that. You can still take that deduction, that charitable contribution. But if you are taking the standard deduction, you're not itemizing and therefore it doesn't really matter. However, what we are encouraging clients who are charitably inclined to do is to bunch uh, their charitable giving. You can use what's called a donor advised fund. Um, The minimum to open one is $5,000. And certainly, if you are charitably inclined, knowing that you give every single year to various uh, institutions and organizations, you can take all of that money, put it into a donor advised fund this year, ideally letting you itemize your deductions, which is good for your taxes, and then give that money to charity over the course of many years and to various charities, not just one. So you're essentially creating your own foundation, so to speak, um, which is helping you with your taxes and also helping your favorite charities. The second thing would be um, if you're required to take your what's called your RMD or your required minimum distribution. Um, this is amount you must take out of your retirement accounts once you reach a, reach a certain age in order to pay taxes on. You can also give that direct some of that money directly to charity. Up to $100,000 could be a tax write-off for you. So you said a minimum of $5,000 for a donor advised fund. So that's not a fund that uh, that works for everybody's budget. Unfortunately not. Um, but again, if you know that you are going to give $5,000 over the course of five or 10 years, this might be something for you to do now. Uh, join our conversation here on Where We Live as we talk about uh, how to prepare for filing your taxes given the new changes to the tax code. Uh, Jack's calling from Bridgeport. Uh, Jack, go ahead. Yes, how you doing? Um, thanks for letting me on. Um, I w- last year, I did my taxes and I got a $900 refund, which is pretty good. Um, and I'm, I have no kids. My kids are growing up and everything. And this year, I filed and. Uh, 
instead of getting a refund, I, I didn't know that much, but still, you know, I went from 900 down to owing the government $14, you know, and I've heard of cases of a lot of people who don't have kids who are married and spelling joint who are getting, uh, you know, shafted by the, by, by, by the, by the, by the you know, by this new tax codes. Well, Jack, that's a good point that uh, you bring up uh, when it comes to dependence. Uh, uh, Maggie, uh, wh- what, what is there for families who are able to claim? And then Jack said, I think he said either doesn't have kids or they've grown up. He can't claim them as dependents anymore. That's right. So in the past, we had what was called the personal exemption. That was $4,150 per person that was filing and per dependent. So that has been eliminated. Um, instead, to offset that, you um, the government has uh, given a child tax credit of $2,000. That's doubled from the previous one. And of course, the the hope is that the standard deduction really made up for anyone using that personal exemption, because again, that standard deduction has almost doubled. Um, The other thing, if you do have dependents you could think about, is um, putting money towards college savings. So here in Connecticut, we have the CHET Fund, um, the Connecticut Higher Education Trust, and uh, it's a 529 plan, and they're pretty generous in um, how much they let you offset from state taxes. So for single filers, it's $5,000, and for married filing jointly, it's $10,000 that you could have as a tax deduction, but putting money away for your kids' Mm -hmm. higher education. Uh, we should bring up, we've mentioned, again, the standard deduction uh, uh, being raised, but Dan on Facebook uh, brings up a good point. The standard deduction may have doubled, but the personal exemption disappeared. His standard deduction may have increased by 12, but I lost 8,000 of my exemptions. Let's walk through some of the exemptions uh, that some people uh, are familiar with that aren't there anymore. I was thinking when I started my journalism career, I moved around a lot. So every year I was able to uh, claim my moving expenses. That's gone. That's right. That is gone. So as I as I explained, the personal exemption is gone. But in that example, it still seems that the personal exemption was less than the standard deduction, right? Um, other things, you're right. You can no longer um, claim moving expenses. Um, you can't claim uh, a home equity loan interest unless that home equity loan is specifically used for home improvement. Um, so some people have used their home equity as a way to pay down debt. Um, that interest would no longer be deductible. Um, another example would be mortgage interest has changed. So now that is capped at a mortgage of $750,000. In the past, it was a million. So again, that's really going to affect more of those really high um, income earners, but something to be aware of. Um, unreimbursed employee expenses. So if your employer sends you to a course and they're not paying for that, uh, let's, you know, in a different state for a day, um, used to be able to, as a taxpayer, deduct that. Now you can't. Oh. Uh, Maggie Jondro, again, is with us here on Where We Live, financial advisor and partner with Jondro Wealth Management. Uh, Maggie, we just have a couple of minutes left. I did want to ask, uh, you know, when we think about changes to the tax code, what that means for corporations, even for small businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the corporate tax code was reduced. It's now 21%. Um, so the idea here is that corporations are going to use their savings to uh, invest in their businesses, potentially upgrade machinery. And of course, hopefully uh, some of that money and those savings could be passed down to the employees with increased wages or bonuses. I believe that when the tax law came out, 750 corporations said that they do intend to either increase wages or give their employees some sort of bonuses. And these were large corporations, including AT&T and Walmart. Um, So hopefully taxpayers will see some sort of uh, benefit there. The other uh, part of your question is um, the 
uh, pass-through deduction. So this is for people who are small business owners, sole proprietors, and freelancers, uh, and people in the gig economy like Uber drivers, for instance. Um, they are able to, so long as they meet the income thresholds, um, deduct up to 20% of their income before filing their federal taxes. Um, this was a way to hopefully eliminate double taxation. And so a lot of small business owners and sole proprietors may be seeing significant reductions in taxes. Uh, when uh, we think about uh, impact on the economy, is it still too soon to see where this money is getting reinvested, Jack, Maggie? Yes, unfortunately it is. Um, everything that I've heard from economists is pretty split. Um, some do are concerned about you know the 5 million people that have underwithheld. That's the estimated number of people who might not be getting a tax return that did in the past. You know What is the effect of that going to be on the economy, that they're not going to be, be able to do the home improvements or take the trips they'd like? But overall, economists do believe um, that there sh- this should be a positive impact on the economy, that the extra money people have in their paychecks um, hopefully is going towards good use to help our economy grow. And when we think about tax credits, uh, is there one for going green? What can you tell us about that, Maggie? There is. So there still is a tax credit for going green. Um, there's also one for education. Even if you're not working towards a degree, just taking some additional courses, there's a tax credit for that as well. Um, and certainly, I always would recommend people maximizing their contributions to their employer-sponsored retirement plan, like a 401k. That could be a significant reduction in, in taxable income, potentially even moving you Uh, to different tax brackets. There's a lot of different um, things that you can do moving forward to reduce your taxable income, and I would certainly encourage you to contact a professional and, and see how they can help. Uh, so, Maggie, again, we w- thank you for coming on the show today. So when we think about preparing for next tax season, some key things that we should be doing. Absolutely. So I already mentioned uh, maximizing your retirement income, or excuse me, your retirement uh, savings. Um, and now that number has actually increased to 19000 a year. Um, and, of course, there's still the $6,000 catch-up that you could add to your 401k if you're over the age of 50. Um, Certainly, you could put money into an individual retirement account or an IRA um, as an additional source of savings. And then you want to take advantage of those employer uh, programs that they might have for you, a health savings account or an HSA, for instance, or a flexible spending account. Um, Some employers even offer uh, credit for or accounts for child care. All of those uh, monies that go into there are pre-tax, all ways to reduce your taxable income. It sounds like with these changes, it's a good year uh, to rely on professional help from a financial advisor or a public accountant. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that there's a learning curve for everybody this year. And so when you're filing your taxes, a CPA is always a good idea. I highly encourage my clients to meet with one. I meet with one myself. Um, The reason being is not only can they make sure that you filed correctly, but also if you are audited by the IRS, they represent you. Um, That is a stressful situation, and it's nice to have someone in your corner. A financial advisor, on the other hand, could help you um, think of creative ways to maybe minimize that tax bill going forward. Again, talking about some of the retirement accounts, um, some the, the college savings account, or even tax loss harvesting, which is a way that, that you can offset some of your ordinary income as well.
Uh, Magdalena Jondro, again, financial advisor and partner with Jondro Wealth Management. Maggie, thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, one of UConn's newest courses in cannabis has proven pretty popular. That's no surprise. But we wanted to know what students are actually learning this semester. Connecticut Public Radio reporter Patrick Scahill visited the class. He's going to join us right after the break. And you can, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Back in December, we introduced you to UConn professor Gerald Berkowitz. He's a plant scientist and one of the individuals behind UConn creating a course this semester focused on cannabis horticulture. Back then, he told us UConn's one of the first universities to offer such a course. Patrick Scahill, Connecticut Public Radio's science and environment reporter, visited that class. He joins us now in studio. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more about this horticulture of cannabis uh, course. Uh, why is UConn offering this again? Yeah, so this is a, a course which is uh, essentially all about growing cannabis plants. It's called uh, Cannabis uh, from Seed to Harvest, and it really is covering sort of all aspects of growing uh, this type of plant. We'll explain a little bit about the specific type of uh, cannabis that they are growing in this class. Um, and it's a class that UConn wanted to offer uh, essentially because there's a market that is emerging right now uh, for growing medical marijuana. There's a market that's emerging uh, for hemp production, and uh, UConn sort of wants to be at the forefront of that, it was was my take on it from the professors there. Uh, you mentioned this this growing industry. Uh, I've, I've read you that. You did air quotes <laughs> as you said growing. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've read that. I think there's only three states that actually prohibit medical marijuana. So while there's a lot of focus, uh, especially in Connecticut, on whether they will legalize recreational marijuana, medical marijuana is a big industry, and they have to be careful with the kind of product that they're creating for people that have certain conditions. Yeah, so I think one of the main uh, objectives of this course uh, that the instructors uh, told me, uh, and there are two, Matthew DeBacco and Gerald Berkowitz uh, over at UConn that are uh, offering this course, is that they basically want to present a scientifically backed way to grow. I mean, this is an industry that for years uh, has been done uh, basically in the shadows. It's been uh, friends of friends growing uh, plants in people in the basement. In, in the basement. <laughs> exactly. Not me. Um, and, and, and what the instructors at the course say are a lot of these folks do really have a lot of really good horticultural skills. They know a lot about uh, how to grow these plants, but they're not running controlled experiments. They're not, um, you know, going on peer-reviewed websites, looking at scientific journals uh, to get information about how to grow. So the course really wants to kind of shine a light on this whole industry and, and basically let people grow the plants better. So you visited the class, but you also have the syllabus in front of you. So tell I me do. exactly, walk us through a little bit of what they're learning. Yeah. So again, uh, it really is from seed to harvest. It's everything from, um, you know, pick. when I was there, they were actually talking about growing mediums. So like what type of soil you would want to use when you're growing a cannabis plant. Uh, they talk about lighting. Uh, they talk about um, all, all, really all sorts of things, um, how to do uh, certain cuts on the plant. There's propagating. There's cloning cannabis. Uh, there's evaluating grow sites. Uh, growing it under controlled conditions indoors, growing it outdoors, and then they're bringing in a lot of uh, guest lecturers as well. Uh, so uh, we should note that uh, this is not something that um, everybody uh, can partake in in the sense of just growing marijuana because you ha it technically is considered uh, illegal by the federal government. So tell us how what mechanism happened where universities could now offer a class like this. Sure. Um, so uh, before I get to that, I guess I'll uh, briefly just explain. So we're talking broad strokes here, there's cannabis, right? So and underneath sort of the umbrella term of cannabis, there's marijuana, and then there's also hemp. 
So the difference, uh, Yukon's growing hemp. They're not, okay. they're not growing marijuana. Uh, and the difference there is basically in how these plants are basically kind of put together, what's in them. So uh, cannabis has something called cannabidiol or CBD. This is something that's been very popular. It's been in the news lately. It's, uh, I don't, can I say it's a trendy health product? It's very <laughs> trendy, <laughs> it, I, I think. I think it's trendy. I think that's safe to say. Um, and then marijuana has THC, and THC is what sort of produces the high that people get when they smoke marijuana. So again, they're growing hemp here. That's what uh, UConn's doing. UConn's been growing hemp uh, on the campus for a few years, uh, and that's because of changes to the Farm Bill in 2014, uh, which essentially let universities run uh, experiments on hemp. Uh, Gerald Berkowitz at UConn uh, was one of the more early people to adopt uh, those, start doing those experiments, uh, and that really laid a lot of the groundwork for the course uh, at UConn. So you mentioned that um, this particular plant doesn't have the THC levels uh, that we associate with uh, marijuana that people use. Uh, but when we think about UConn being a horticulture school, too, so the students are actually growing the plants on campus? So plants are growing on campus. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the students have a, a little interaction with them, but okay. they're not going in and they're not you know, making cuts and, and okay. putting them in, in new pots and stuff. Uh, basically, uh, the way it works uh, for the students who are in the course, and there's a lot of students in this course, which I guess isn't terribly surprising. There's about 300 kids that are enrolled in this course right now. Um, uh, there are a couple of grow tents that are in a greenhouse. Students can go in. They can look at the plants that are in there. Um, and then every day, uh, they actually take a few of those cannabis uh, hemp plants from the greenhouse and bring them into uh, basically the largest lecture hall uh, on UConn Stores campus. Um, so that, and I actually spoke with the um, student who who does that every single day. She gets a, a lot of sort of you know funny looks when she's you know bringing these <laughs> tall bet. hemp weed plants you know into into this large large lecture hall that seats stranger kids. Oh, uh, I, I we mentioned how big the class is. So who are the students that are in this class? Uh, it really is everybody. It's, you know, uh, I spoke with students who are real estate finance majors. There were business majors. Uh, there were folks who were uh, from a biology background. Uh, it's a one-on-one -on -one course. It's open to all students. It was mostly uh, seniors and juniors because enrollment filled up really, really quickly. Um, but there were also communication majors uh, in this uh, class as well, um, like uh, Michael Milius, who I spoke to. Uh, and we have a clip of, of what Michael told you. Here it is. Um, I see on the news a lot that cannabis and marijuana are becoming more prevalent with um, becoming legal across the country. And I figured if this does turn out to be something that like a market pops up, maybe it would be good for me to know how to grow. So tell us more about some of the career paths people can take. Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, a lot of, a lot of students were in the class. They said, I'm here because uh, this is something that I basically just wanted to be a part of. It seemed like, like an interesting course. Uh, this is something the university is billing it as the first sort of horticulturally focused cannabis class in the whole nation. Uh, something like that's a little bit tough to prove, but it certainly is unique. I think that is definitely fair to say. Uh, so students were curious about it. And then others, uh, like Michael, just said, you know, basically, hey, I'm studying communication. Uh, this is an emergent market. There could be a job opportunity in the future here. And if I can say on my resume that I took a class on growing cannabis at a university level, that's something that's kind of different, something that's kind of unique, and it might make me uh, more marketable just in the job market. I mentioned we spoke to Gerald Berkowitz uh, on the show before, professor of plant science at UConn. So he's one of the instructors. Tell us more about who else is teaching the course. Yeah, so the other instructor is uh, Matthew DeBacco, uh, and he's presenting the course in sort of a really interesting way. Uh, he's doing this uh, flipped classroom style, and uh, the way this basically works is students will watch uh, the lectures before going into the class, and then when they're actually in the class, 
uh, each class will be presented with a, a different problem um, or a different sort of scenario. Uh, so when I was there, they were basically, like I said, comparing different growing mediums. So one group would be looking uh, at a certain type of growing medium, a certain type of soil. Another group would be looking at another. Groups get together. They make a little presentation, and then uh, those are presented uh, during the lecture. Uh, and we talked, I know you also spoke to uh, Gerald for your story. This is what, uh, again, UConn professor Gerald Berkowitz uh, told Patrick when he visited this uh, horticulture of cannabis uh, course at UConn. If we uh, have students who treat the course as seriously as we're offering it, I think that we will have a situation where people in myriad fields, academic fields, are going to feel legitimatized. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, UConn, one of the first universities to offer a course like this. Has there been a lot of interest, um, from, have they told you, from um, other universities wanting to partner with them or even uh, the people that are already in the industry looking to cultivate some of that talent? Yeah. Um, Gerald, <laughs> Gerald was joking when I was talking to him. He was saying when uh, the first articles went out um, last year that they were going to be offering this course, he was getting emails <laughs> from all around the world of people offering to fly themselves in and you know offer guest lectures uh, in the course. And he was like, oh, it's very interesting. Um, but short answer, yes, there's a ton of interest. Um, there's interest from folks uh, in other academic fields who are, and I think this is you know one of the things that Gerald Berkowitz is really hoping people take away from this class is that, hey, th- this is this is a real science, There's and there's a lot of science that needs to be done here because for years, federal grants didn't support this type of research. So now that um, there is more scientific eyeballs kind of on this stuff, the hope is that, yeah, you know, maybe you can get someone from mechanical engineering to come over and say, I can design uh, a better way to you know, make a grow facility. Maybe we can get electrical engineers to come in. Um, folks, chemistry backgrounds, all of these people coming in and hopefully shining more light on this field. Um, how has there been any pushback from uh, you know we we hear about that UConn is uh, getting getting support from the university to offer this course, but again, it's still uh, there's still some controversy when you think about um, the fact that this is still considered a, uh, an illegal drug, even though they're they're experimenting on, on hemp uh, plants. Uh, I'm just curious, like what pushback they've gotten, if at all. Uh, according, I mean, so uh, a lot of the the. A lot of this course, the groundwork was laid years prior to it actually happening, again, with changes to the 2014 Farm Bill. So a lot of those sort of awkward conversations about, oh, you want to grow cannabis plants in the greenhouse? Hmm, how's that going to work? Gerald Berkowitz says he had a lot of those years in advance of this class happening, and um, he says that's contributed to a lot of the reasons for why you could sort of get this course off the ground before other other schools could. Um, And other schools are going to be offering uh, similar types of courses in the future, according to Gerald Berkowitz. Patrick Scahill, again, is science and environment reporter for WMPR Connecticut Public Radio. Also blogs at thebeaker.org. Don't miss that site. (laughs) Patrick, did we miss anything? Uh, I don't think so. It really is a a unique... Interesting course, and uh, yeah, you'll hear more about it uh, on Connecticut Public Radio. I think tomorrow we're going to air the feature. So perfect. Well, Patrick, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, ProPublica and Stat, a health news site, have obtained a court document that raises questions over what some members of the family that owns Purdue Pharma knew about its opioid painkiller OxyContin. A reporter from ProPublica is going to join us right after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is $10 an hour enough to pay the bills? On the next Where We Live, we're going to take a look at calls to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That's happening around the country, including here in Connecticut. What would that mean for businesses across the state? We're going to talk to an economist and some business owners. And of course, we want to hear from you. That conversation coming up tomorrow. Also, Where We Live is coming to a coffee shop near you. We're hosting a coffee break at local cafes around the state to hear from you what issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs. You can join me and Where We Live producers Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff tomorrow. That's Tuesday, February 26th at Washington Street Coffee House in New London, Connecticut. And you can learn more at our Facebook page. Just search for Where We Live. Now, Purdue Pharma is right in our backyard. The Stanford-based pharmaceutical company is also practically a household name in 36 states. That's because all of these states have sued Purdue Pharma over what they say is the company's role in the national opioid epidemic. Purdue Pharma manufactures OxyContin, an opioid painkiller. Now, a court document is raising questions about how much the Sackler family, who owns the company, knew about the addictive qualities of that drug. For more, joining us by phone is David Armstrong. He's senior reporter at ProPublica. David, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this court document. It centers on uh, testimony, sworn testimony from Dr. Richard Sackler. Tell us more about who this man is. So Richard Sackler is a member of the family, the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma is a little bit different kind of pharmaceutical concern in that it is privately held. Um, a lot of the big pharmas are publicly traded companies that um, you know, have a board of directors that is not a family, uh, as it is in the case of Purdue. So um, Purdue stands out in that regard. So Richard Sackler um, is second-generation member of the family. His father was one of the co-founders of Purdue Pharma. But he was very intimately involved in um, running the company. He worked there for uh, more than 30 years, I believe. He became the president and uh, was co-chairman of the board. So um, if anybody has insight into how Purdue operated, it would be Richard Sackler. So when we think about this court document, first, uh, how did you obtain it? And what does it uh, uh, center on uh, when we think about, again, how this company marketed OxyContin? Well, um, I can't tell you how we obtained it. I can tell you that... um, Myself and and Stat, um, where I previously worked before ProPublica, filed a um, Stat actually filed a lawsuit three years ago to have this document unsealed. The importance of the document is we believe it's the only time a member of the Sackler family has been interviewed under oath and asked questions about the marketing of OxyContin. And what we learned from this document is that Richard Sackler was intimately involved in marketing decisions. Um, approving them, um, helping to think about them, and also being asked to sign off on certain strategies. So that it was important from that standpoint um, in terms of knowing um, sort of what he's done and also sort of his view, broadly speaking, on the role of OxyContin in um, the opioid crisis. Uh, in the deposition, what were some of the things that really struck you about, uh, again, this was a, a deposition that happened in the, the state of Kine- uh, Kentucky. They were suing uh, Purdue Pharma, so this is why Dr. Sackler uh, was um, uh, testified uh, under oath. Uh, tell us what struck you. Well, a couple of things. I think, you know, the, sort of the headline is um, that Dr. Sackler was involved in approving um, a marketing decision not to tell doctors that they were mistakenly under the impression that OxyContin was not as powerful as morphine. 
In fact, OxyContin is twice as powerful as morphine. But what they found was the, the more benign view of the drug was helping to drive sales in the chronic pain market. You know, this is non-acute injuries, uh, things like back pain, arthritis, um, you know, which can be obviously serious debilitating conditions, but um, different than end-of-life care or people with, um, you know, a form of cancer that's not treatable or things like that. So they, they made a decision not to inform doctors that they were wrongly viewing this drug because it was helping them. And Dr. Sackler, Richard Sackler, signed off on this. You know, there's a really incredible email in which his head of marketing and sales says, I don't intend to do anything about this misperception. And, and Richard Sackler wrote, I agree. Um, so that was kind of stunning. Um, there was another, um, there's a lot of things, but one other one I'll mention is that Dr. Sackler was pushing executives in Germany to see if they could get the drug unregulated there. Now, OxyContin is a very powerful narcotic. Um, that's why it works in some cases as a pain reliever. And because of the risk of addiction, these drugs are tightly controlled. Um, he wanted it to be less restricted overseas because it would help sales and make it easier to prescribe. And he was directly involved in that effort and became quite upset when it wasn't approved. How much money has OxyContin uh, made for the Sackler family? Billions. Um, this drug has been incredibly successful, um, driven in part by this marketing campaign uh, that was found in 2007 to be um, illegal. Purdue admitted to that. We know that from 2007 to about 2018, um, profits directly flowing to the family were $4 billion. Before that, we know that OxyContin um, alone uh, netted about $4.6 billion. So, you know, a pretty good estimate is that the family, um, over the 20-year course of this drug being on the market, uh, was paid about $8 billion. On the phone with me is David Armstrong, senior reporter at ProPublica. We're talking about a story from ProPublica and Stat, which is a health news site. Um, they published a court deposition that Dr. Richard Sackler gave uh, in a suit uh, when they, the company was sued by uh, the state of Kentucky. And what that deposition uh, disclosed regarding how much uh, Dr. Sackler and others knew about how addictive uh, OxyContin was and how the company marketed it uh, all these years. Uh, despite the qualities uh, that this drug had. Um, if you haven't read this article, we're going to uh, tweet it out, and it's also on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. David, what has Purdue Pharma said about uh, your story? Well, um, Purdue, you know, it's interesting. You know, for, for a number of years, the role of the Sackler family was little discussed. Um, and in fact, Purdue Pharma as a company was little known. You know, people knew about OxyContin. They didn't know much about who made it and how it came to be and all that kind of uh, thing. So in the last, really, year, maybe two years, there's been increasing scrutiny of the family. The family's contention is that um, they're being unfairly pilloried by um, people who are suing them, that... Um, you know, folks are sort of selectively taking salacious details out of context from legal filings in an effort to demonize them. They haven't really substantially responded to the specific allegations that are raised in some of these documents. You know, generally speaking, they've said that the op opioid crisis is a very complex thing. It's unfair to blame one family or one company for it, and that they've done a lot um, in their view to try and address issues related to addiction. Mm. 
Uh, we uh, should mention again, uh, most people know that Purdue Pharma is based uh, here in, in Stamford, uh, Connecticut. Uh, when we think about uh, all of these states, including Connecticut, that have sued uh, Purdue Pharma uh, for uh, what they believe is their role in this opio- opioid epidemic, I think more than 200,000 people have died over the last two decades from overdoses involving prescription uh, opioids. Uh, when you mentioned 2007, I just want to make clear to our listeners, this was a, a federal plea deal that three former executives of Purdue Pharma pled guilty to for uh, misrepresenting the drug in marketing? That's right. Um, not only three former executives, but the company itself, um, you know, Purdue is a actually uh, sort of a very complex corporate entity. There's, there's um, many, many um, Purdue-related entities. So Purdue Frederick Company, which is one of the Purdue companies, pled guilty to a felony of misbranding OxyContin. So it was both the executives and the company. And one of the interesting things is there was an agreed statement of facts. You know, here's the bad behavior that the company admits it conducted. And one of those things was deliberately uh, misleading doctors um, or failing to correct the impression that OxyContin was weaker than morphine. And that's what was so interesting about the deposition and seeing that Richard Sackler was involved in those discussions and and essentially saying it's okay to continue this. But no member of the Sackler family um, has ever been charged uh, with any of uh, these uh, misdemeanors or other um, allegations related to how they misrepresented the drug, David? That, that's true. Um, that 2007 settlement made no mention of the family at all. So uh, you mentioned not much was known about the Sackler family, but again, uh, they're billionaires, and a lot of their money um, has uh, been given to uh, different uh, foundations uh, and uh, art institutions, including uh, the University of Connecticut. How complicated has that become for these institutions as uh, the Sackler name and scrutiny over the actions of Purdue Pharma grows? Well, it's it's becoming it's becoming more complicated by the day, and you know, in Connecticut, in addition to the University of Connecticut, you also have the Sacklers being very generous to Yale, um, where there's several endowed Sackler chairs. There's institutes at the school named after them, um, and yes, you make a good point. You know, before um, the recent publicity and, and attention and scrutiny of the family's involvement with OxyContin, you know, the, to the extent the family was known, it was for you know, uh, buildings named Sackler at famous cultural institutions, at the leading educational institutions, not only in the U.S., all over the world. I mean, uh, in London, you know, you can't walk four blocks without seeing something named Sackler. So this has put these institutions in a bit of a bind, you know, what to do now uh, as we learn more about the source of a lot of this funding uh, for these philanthropic efforts. Uh, the Hartford Current reported on uh, the University of Connecticut, uh, which had received about $4.5 million in philanthropic contributions from the Sackler family. Uh, UConn has decided not to return any of the donations. Um, in a statement, the university said none of the funds that were established by Raymond and Beverly Sackler, so the, the parents of uh, Richard Sackler, and none of the activities they support are UConn are connected to research, teaching, or programs related to opioids, pain management, the marketing of prescription opioids or influencing what physicians prescribe. Uh, David, has that been uh, the same uh, uh, decision that other institutions have made? Yeah, I think it, it, um, it does fall in line with what has happened elsewhere. You know, I am not aware of a single entity or institution 
that has returned any Sackler money. And that to me would be the tipping point. If you see a high profile um, institution say that, you know, we can't in good conscience keep this money, or even, and this hasn't happened yet to, the, to, to my knowledge, say that they won't accept future money, you know, then you'll, you'll, it'd be interesting to see if other institutions go along with that. But it hasn't happened yet. And I don't know if there's a tipping point or not. You know, um, you know, a lot of these places don't like to give money back. That's a fact. So, you know, it would take a lot, I think, um, for, uh, you know, institutions to decide that they're going to give money back. It might be easier to say we won't accept any in the future. And David, uh, since uh, more attention has been um, uh, given to OxyContin and uh, addiction to um, opioid painkillers, the company has made some changes to the particular pill. It's harder for them to crush. What can you tell us? Yeah, they did. Around 2010, they came out with a new version of OxyContin. Uh, that is, uh, they call it uh, an abuse deterrent. Some people call it tamper resistant. It's not entirely impossible um, to get the drug into a form that it can be abused. And, you know, you can abuse the drug just by taking high doses of the pills, um, you know, and taking more than, you know, what you should in, in the course of a day. So there are other ways to abuse it. But that that certainly did slow um, the uh, use of the drug um, in an abusive situation, um, some people, um, and there's not a lot of evidence for this or you know direct evidence, but some people do point to the fact that around that time we started to see a rise in the uh, abuse of heroin and fentanyl, um, which are now very easy to get a hold of. Um, there might be other reasons for that too, um, but that sort of occurred in that general time frame. Uh, there, there also, uh, I don't remember when this was reported, but uh, in the last uh, year, there was a lot of uh, criticism of the company because, again, there's questions of, of what the company knew and what the role of this company uh, played in the opioid uh, epidemic. But then uh, Purdue Pharma is also looking to, to make uh, uh, medicine uh, to deal with addiction treatment. This is pretty stunning. This was a a finding um, from another lawsuit, this one by the state of Massachusetts, that um, Purdue had a, a project called Project Tango in which they explored um, getting into the business of addiction treatment, um, primarily through um, acquiring a company that sells uh, Suboxone, which is used to treat opioid addiction. They, they eventually decided not to do it, but they have looked at other things too. They explored the possibility of um, distributing Narcan um, and, and as we know now, um, Dr. Richard Sackler has a patent for a, a, a different medication that can be used to treat addiction. So they certainly explored it and actively looked at it. They haven't started to do it yet, but it is something they've definitely considered. And of course, you know, a lot of people um, found that uh, to be problematic because, you know, the implication is that... Um, you know, they, they would benefit from a problem they created. And David Armstrong, we're going to have to leave it there. Senior reporter at ProPublica. Again, we'll uh, point listeners to your story and the work of your colleagues. Thanks again, David. Okay, thanks for having me. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to Kion Wolf and Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>